All right. Well, let's go ahead and let's pray, and then we'll spend a little bit of time in the book of Proverbs. Dear Gracious Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for Jesus, who has come and and died on the cross for our sins. We thank you that your spirit is working on us and working on our hearts, causing us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We are so very thankful for the church body that you've given us, and we ask that we would continue to flee to your word, flee to your son, that we may be complete in him. We just continually ask for your blessings upon us in this time, that we may see wonderful, marvelous truths, and that we may know your character and your will, and that your spirit will help us uh, put those things into practice. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. So, uh, there's a guy in Brazil that for the past two decades has been living in a sandcastle. It's kind of weird. Well, it's not really a sandcastle because he actually built a house and then he put sand on top of it. And every day he's got to go out and rebuild the sandcastle because it, it falls down. But he claims he's lived in a sandcastle for the past 22 years. Well, except when there's a storm, then he has to go to somebody else's house. But then he comes back to his shack and he rebuilds the castle. He also has to go uh, somewhere to take a shower. He also has to go to somebody else's house to cook. But the guy definitely lives, lived the past 22 years in a sandcastle. Obviously, you can't live in a sandcastle. As much as many of us would love to live in a sandcastle, it's probably a lot cheaper than a lot of the rent and mortgages we have to pay. But there's a reason you can't live in a sandcastle. Sand is a terrible building material, right? You need other building materials. There are people, however, who, spiritually speaking, when they are seeking protection, they're seeking to live somewhere, they're building their lives, they're building their values, they will build their values, they will build their theology, they will build all of their life to become spiritual sandcastles, right? There's really not a lot there. They really can't handle the... uh, the complications of life. It can't handle reality. And, but they, they construct these huge, huge, beautiful, beautiful facades with sand, thinking I'm going to be protected by my sandcastle, and that's just not the case. I wonder how many of us, when we are going for protection or we're building our lives around values and the value system, how many times we actually have support beams and pillars actually of sand and not necessarily of the true building materials that will actually protect us. This morning in Proverbs chapter 18, in verses 10 through 19, we're going to be discussing where people go for protection, where they go to be protected spiritually, where they grow to be protected on a whole, whole bunch of things. And what we're going to find is we're going to find that the fool does something worse than building a sandcastle. He builds imaginary castles. 
and thinks that he can be protected by an imaginary castle, which is worse than building a sandcastle thinking that will protect you. And we're going to see that he builds it based upon his arrogance, upon his pride. He builds it based upon his inflated view of his own worth. Uh, There's a lack of discernment. What we're also going to see is we're going to see the wise do the opposite. The wise actually go to the only source of protection. They, They actually go to a place that can actually protect them. They go to the Lord for protection. They use biblical discernment in, in protection, and they, they look to divine principles for protection. And that's what we're going to see in Proverbs 18, 10 through 19 this morning. So go with me, and let's start in Proverbs eighteen ten. And the first thing that we're going to see about finding, uh, find, uh, finding protection in a strong castle, the, the, the strongest castle is a real castle, that actually protects you. The weakest kind of castle is an imaginary castle that will not protect you, right? So things that are real are far more better and actually can protect you than an imaginary castle. I know that logic might be difficult, but if you bear with me, I think you'll understand real is better than imaginary. So go with me to verse 10 and notice what it says. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Just think of that. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. God himself is a strong tower. He is a fortress. When, when Solomon uses the word name here, remember he's talking about the fame of God. He's talking about the character of God. He's talking about what we know of God So essentially, what he's saying is he's saying God and all that God is, is a strong, formidable fortress. It's a place where someone can find protection. God himself is a real fortress. The question is, what, what, what is the, what are we being protected from? Why do we need to run to the Lord there's many things, but I would say this. In the book of Proverbs, what Solomon is concerned with is that we live a life of wisdom, that we live, we live a life that is based off of God's word, that we live a life that is honoring and glorifying to him and ultimately getting to know him more and more. So when we run to God to know him more and more and we trust him, there is life that comes from that. What we're being protected from is all of that other stuff that is not life, right? All that other stuff that brings destruction and animosity and causes foolishness. It is a a safety from a ruinous life, a life apart from the Lord, a life that doesn't ultimately end with knowing God. It, it, It speaks of all of that. So when we're running to the Lord for safety, we're running to him because he is the possessor of life. He's the possessor of wisdom. When we're running to him as a strong tower, we're asking him to protect us from death and destruction. We're asking him to protect us from foolishness and sin. That's what we're asking, okay? And notice the righteous man will run into it. He doesn't say walk. He doesn't say get out a map and look and see where it is. And then when he finds it, He then plans it 
and gets all the stuff ready and then he goes, maybe tomorrow, I'm kind of tired. No, he sees it and he runs to it. The question is, why would you run? Because you understand the present danger of not being right with the Lord. You understand that when I'm not right with the Lord, there is destruction, there are dangerous things out here that can hurt me, hurt me spiritually, hurts me with my relationships with others, hurts me with my relationship with the Lord. When I'm out by myself, that is bad. If we're in a group together and we're outside of the stronghold, which is the Lord, that is bad. You, it is never safe to leave the stronghold. The righteous knows this, and they run to get there as fast as they can. And notice, and is safe in it. There is safety, security by the Lord. Think about this. When we place our faith in Christ, not only do we get the indwelling Holy Spirit, not only are we put inside of the church, but we're given this security that there's now no condemnation for the believer. We now get the security in these promises that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. There's this promise and security that regardless of what happens, God is in control. And even if we die, we're going to live with the Lord if we're right with the Lord. All of these incredible promises are ours. And this is that strong tower. And there's this safety here with him. Now notice verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. So notice verse 10 The righteous have the Lord as a strong tower, right? By the way, it is interesting in verse 10 that it says the Lord is the strong tower. Regardless of whether you go there or not, it is still a strong tower. The advice is you should go there. Notice that verse 11, the rich man, his wealth is his strong tower or his strong city. Has the idea of a fortress. And it says, and like a high wall. So just imagine uh, an ancient city, if you can, and imagine what you, what you think of when you think of a walled fortress city. You have all these buildings inside, and then you have this wall to keep unwanted people out. If you want to really keep them out, you make the wall higher. And if you really, really want to keep them out, you make it even taller, right? The taller the wall, the more formidable it is and the more difficult it is to get inside the city. The tall wall is a really important thing. And so if you were going to fight a war against another city and you saw a really strong positioned city that had a really formidable fortress and walls and tall towers, you would go, I don't think I'm going to invade that place because we're going to really get hurt before we get there. So in, in, in the rich man's mind, he goes, my money is a great city, great fortress, high walls. But notice, it is a, like a high wall in his imagination. So it's not a real fortress. He thinks it's a fortress, but it's not. It's only in his mind. He thinks, because I have a lot of money, I am untouchable. Now, some of you may say, now, Caleb, we have studied the book of Proverbs, and we studied quite a bit. Chapter 10, it talks about how riches are a security. And that seemed like a really good thing. Why is Solomon changing his mind? I don't think Solomon is changing his mind. I think there's a major difference. In chapter 10, verse 15, where we saw, where we saw that the, the wealth of a man is his defense, The idea was that he was a godly person who feared the Lord and that he came about 
that wealth in godly means. And he's using that wealth in a way that's honoring to the Lord. And in that sense, it's a great security, right? The indication here is the opposite, that this is not a moral man, that this is a foolish man, and that there is absolutely no trust in the Lord, and that the only defense he has is money. He thinks his wealth is his only defense. But Solomon is pointing out, it really is not a defense. Now the question is, why would a fool, even a rich fool, think that his wealth is a great defense? Well, I think the next verse kind of gives us a little bit of insight. It says, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So why would, why would somebody think my wealth, what I got, be a great protection for me against danger, against foolishness, against all of the bad things that might happen? Why, why, why does he think that is a great thing? Because he is haughty in his own eyes. So notice that there is destruction And where there's this destruction of going off into folly, this destruction of broken relationships, this destruction of family, this destruction of eternal destruction of going to hell, when you see that, you can normally go back in that person's life and say one of the root causes of that was his arrogance. He thought he was greater, far more worth anything than anyone else. He was great. And it's in his own assessment of himself, this inflated assessment of himself, that he then thinks, what I have will protect me. I can protect myself. I can build a strong enough castle that will protect me from every foreseeable problem. That only leads to his destruction. Now, this is not an indictment against those who, are hap- who happen to be more wealthy than others. This is not saying that those who are wealthy are inherently evil. It's saying that those who are wealthy and only trust in their wealth are arrogant, and they are a fool. But notice then the opposite, right? So before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. What would a humble person do? Well, a humble person wouldn't build an imaginary castle and then say, this is going to protect me from all folly, right? What would a humble person do? I'm going to go to the place where I actually can be protected, the Lord. That's what a humble person does. A humble person says, I can't protect myself because I know my plight. I know who I am. I know who the Lord is. I know what he offers. I know what he promises. I can't protect myself. Therefore, I need the Lord's protection. So you understand when we are seeking protection from folly, from sin, when we're, when we're looking for protection, we need to go to the Lord. That's a real defense, okay? It's not an imaginary one. It's a real one. Now, there's another thing that we need to remember about a defense. We want a strong defense, right? We want to find a strong castle. We need to remember that a strong defense has real discernment, right? So one is a real defense. That which is real is better than that which is imaginary. But we also need to realize that discernment is a huge part, right? It is possible for us to be like Don Quixote and see something and go, well, that looks like a really strong castle and run to it and realize it's not a castle at all. We need discernment. 
We need discernment on which way to go. What's, what's the right course of action? The, the discernment is a proper defense for us. It protects us from many things that the Lord doesn't want in our life. So notice, notice how, how Solomon talks about discernment in verse 13. He says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. <laughs> Just because I do this a lot, we're going to skip any comments that I have on this one, and we're going to go on to the next one. No, we, we do this a lot, don't we? Spe- especially since the, the advent of social media. Man, a lot of people give a lot of opinions about a lot of stuff without hearing everything, right? And that, that is a shameful thing. That is very foolish. I, d- I don't think Solomon, though, is writing specifically just, hey, be careful what you say. Make sure you do your research before you say it. I think there's something deeper. It is likely that a lot of us have a lot of presuppositions and baggage that we carry around with us that do not come from God's word, myself included. When people ask for advice, it is easy for me to immediately give an answer. Here's an answer. It doesn't necessarily consult God's word, It doesn't necessarily think through the issue, but it consults some of my presuppositions. So I speak and I give a response. That's bad. Here's another thing that I think happens. If I fear the Lord, then, then, and if you fear the Lord, then we're wise. And part of that fearing of the Lord is looking at each other correctly. And sometimes when we talk with each other, we... uh, we don't really care what each other is saying. We really just can't wait till we get a chance to say something. So a lot of times we'll listen to people. We'll go, yep, 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 yep. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Okay, well, now, now let me tell you about what happened to me. Or sometimes we'll even interrupt each other because what I have to say is more significantly important than what you have to say. That, that's not how Christians should act. We, we, we should not... We should not have such a lack of self-control that we just blurt out things without, without thinking about them, testing them to God's word. Uh, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be quick to just shoot off answers if, from our own presuppositions that we need to listen to God's word. There's one other thing that I find with people that, that uh, talk way before they listen, myself included, is... Uh, if I don't listen, I'm more prone to being angry. So, like, for example, James 1. Now, beloved brethren, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Let's be honest. There is a connection between being quick to speak, slow to listen, and being quick to anger. There is a real correlation there. And then the next statement is, for the anger of man does not, or does not produce the righteousness of God. This is not what God wants. And when we do these types of things... This shows our lack of discernment, our lack of wisdom, our lack of love. Shows our lack of respect towards the Lord, that, that we can just shoot off our mouth before we even hear. And this is a folly and shame, and this is a, this is a downfall of discernment, of knowing when to say something in the right way at the right time. Now, just to be honest, no one in this room is perfect with your speech. No one can tame your tongue. We all do this. 
The goal for the believer is to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk by the Spirit, to produce the fruit of the Spirit, and that fruit of the Spirit will then come out in our speech. And hopefully we don't do this, right? Hopefully we don't expose our our folly and our shame. But, but, But think about this. A person who is trying to protect themselves sometimes shoots off really quick things that come to their mind, right? They think this is a good thing. This is a good thing to do. It's not. It's not. This requires discernment. Now, verse 14, notice, it says, A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear it? It's kind of an interesting verse, right? On the one hand, uh, a, man, a, man, a man's spirit will endure a sickness, meaning that a person can handle a sickness. You have a broken leg, you can, you can learn how to deal with that. You have a serious illness, you can learn how to deal with that. But, but I'll, I'll be honest, I, I don't think that this is just merely a testament to the human will. You must remember that in Proverbs, the undertow of every verse, the undercurrent is always the fear of the Lord. And this is what a person who looks, this is a person who fears the Lord, this is what they look like. So a person that fears the Lord will be able to endure a sickness without becoming depressed to the point where they stop living for the Lord. We just read right before, I thought it was really appropriate when Greg read Philippians 4. Um, we didn't plan it this way. We just, just how the Lord brought it together. But what did Paul say to the, the church? Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice, right? Rejoice always. How can somebody rejoice when they have a sickness? How can somebody endure this? Because they trust the Lord. They know the Lord. They have this discernment of knowing what is right and what is wrong. And they can think about the situation theologically. They can think about it in a way that brings honor and glory to God and doesn't stop them from living for the Lord, but encourages them to continue to live for the Lord. That's that's what a wise person does. A wise person has the discernment, and they're able to think through that sickness. They're able able to think through that disease, and they're able to please the Lord. But notice the opposite. But a crushed spirit, who can bear? Meaning, meaning, I can endure a crushed leg, but once the spirit gets crushed, it's game over, right? You can't live long like that. I don't think Solomon is talking about every kind of depression here. I think what he's talking about here is he's talking about that type of depression that type of weight of a guilty conscience. I, I think he's talking about that, that, that weight of depression and guilt and shame that comes from a bad view of God, comes from a bad view of myself, and has no remedy for guilt and sin, and is just holding on to it, and it's crushing them and crushing them and crushing them. And there's that overwhelming depression that comes from that sin and that guilt. That's what I think he's talking about here. And who can bear that? Who can, who can live with themselves that way? No one can. See, us as believers, it's possible for us to, to adopt bad theology, to adopt a bad view of the situation, to have really bad expectations, right? Have, have a bad view of the actual promises of God 
And we can, we can dupe our thinking and add on to ourselves the weight of depression and hurt ourselves because we have a bad view of God, because we have a bad view of ourselves, and because we're not confessing our sins. That's what I think is being talked about here. Discernment, discernment. Notice verse 15. An intelligent heart inquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. This uh, phrase, an intelligent heart, in, in, in the Hebrew is uh, probably better translating the discerning in heart. It's probably a better uh, understanding of this word, not just that they know a lot of things, but that they're discerning. And notice that a discerning person, what does a discerning person do? A discerning person acquires knowledge of God and of his will. Right? That, that's the solution. That's the solution. That's why I say in verse 14 that that crushed spirit is most likely not, does not come from knowledge of God, but comes from, uh, from a lack of knowledge of God and a lack of knowledge of his will and that, that lifestyle that accumulates on them all those things that happen when you, when you don't know God and you don't know his will. And notice the ear of the wise, the discerning, seeks knowledge. Seeks God, seeks his will. So protection for us as believers comes from discernment. So first it has to be a real defense, right? If I'm seeking protection, it has to be a real defense. It has to be something that's real, not imaginary. Second, it has to have real discernment, right? That ability to determine what is right and what is wrong and the proper course of how to act. Now, let's go to this next section. This next section is that it must have divine principles. (laughs) This is where uh, we might get into a little bit of a rodeo. There are some things here that are a little difficult. A little difficult because, one, we're so far removed from how this word was used when Solomon wrote it. That's some of the difficulty. Sometimes with original languages, that is the difficulty, is... They used a particular word, and we don't know how they used it in a context. So they could say a word that in a normal context is just a normal word, but they use it in a certain way, and everyone who's reading it at the time goes, oh, that's a nefarious thing. We who are removed from that culture don't have that particular cultural knowledge. And so that makes some of these things very difficult. What makes this thing also difficult is that it is used in the Bible Several times. Let me show you what I mean. Go go with me to verse 16. It says, a man's gift makes room for him. So the the issue here is on the word gift. It's used sometimes to refer to something that's good, right? Like you would just give a gift to somebody, right? There's no strings attached to it. It's just simply a gift, right? And it was normally a gift that an inferior would give to a superior just out of adoration, right? I gift this to you. No strings attached. I don't want you to look at this gift and and have this cloud your judgment. The problem is that it is also used the other way, as somebody giving a gift to cloud someone's judgment. So we wrestle with this and we go, okay, so is Solomon saying that it's good to give gifts and thus will make room for you, meaning that it will open up opportunities for you and, and it will bring you before the great people? 
Or is Solomon saying, this is what a fool does, that a fool gives gifts to open up doors so that he can get, so he can get in the room with, with great and powerful people? In my thinking, and in the context of this verse, and, and in the verses to follow, I am thinking that this is not an innocent gift, right? There's not an innocent one. That this is more like the gift that a lobbyist would give to a legislator, right? It's a gift. There's really no, uh, I'm going to give you this, you give me that. But it's given with the, with the knowledge that someday I'm going to come to you for a favor. <laughs> and because I gave you this gift, you're going you're to give me a favor, Right? That's the idea that I think here. And so think of this. This It's kind of like a bribe. This is opposite of God's principles. Bribes and these types of gifts only pervert justice. They only cloud the judgment of people who are making decisions because they're thinking about the things that they've received. They're trying to protect themselves and they're trying to protect their own interests. And and, and they realize that I'm going to let some things go because this person is giving me something and it's beneficial to me. Not beneficial to society at large, not beneficial to the community, not beneficial to the ones who are actually being hurt. It's beneficial to me and beneficial to this one. The Bible unequivocally, unequivocally denies these things and says that this type of practice is evil and should be condemned. And so here, this idea of giving a gift with the hopes that it will come back and pay in the end so that it will open up doors of opportunity for you is, is a way of perverting justice. Now, it does, it does seemingly work from time to time, right? You pay, you give a gift like this, and sometimes this works, and you get great influence. And sometimes it even, ha- it even pays uh, in the legal system. Notice the next verse. Verse 17, the one who states his case first seems right. So imagine this. Imagine this. You, uh, you give a gift to a judge. It's not a, it's not a bribe. It's a gift because he's a great judge. But someday you're going you're, you're to get in trouble. You go before that judge who you've given a gift to, and what does he do? He allows your case to be heard and excludes the other, and everyone seems that you're right. I don't know about you, but I, I love watching those courtroom dramas. I love reading courtroom books. I, I even like watching people's court. I will sit and watch that stuff for hours. Some people don't. I love it. There was one. It almost plays out exactly like this verse. There was a guy. He, uh, he was getting in trouble, and, bef- and he knew he was going to get in trouble. He knew he was going to be found out in this company. And so what he did was he... He, he looked at all of the people on staff, and he realized that there was a lady in HR who had a husband who was sick. And, she, and he said, let me, give you, uh, let me give you the keys to my condo down in Orlando. There is this great place where your husband can get treatment. No strings attached. Just go. Use it. While you're down there, I got a car. You can use the car. And she took this as, wow, what an incredible gift. She goes down. Her husband goes down. She then, she's commuting back and forth from Orlando to where they live. This guy gets called up for disciplinary actions. The lady says 
This guy is guilty, and he gets demoted. The guy then turns around and sues her for breach of contract. This stuff happens. This is how, this is how foolish people act, right? And we live in a society where the first one who gets to say the story, they seem right. But when we think about God's principles, this is not the way things should be. Because notice the next part of this. One who states his case first seems right, right? He does. If he gets the camera, the TV camera first, that's kind of how we all think about it, until the other comes and examines him. Uh Uh-oh. When somebody comes and examines, then there's some problems in the first story. It is only when you believe in God's principles that you believe, okay, there is another side to the story. That, that really, ultimately, the one who can determine what is right and wrong is God. Because notice the next verse in verse 18, the lot puts an end to quarrels. Now remember, the casting of the lots, it's not like a flip of the coin. This was a way that they used to determine God's will. They, they, would, they would cast these, these things. We don't really know what they were. And, and th- there would normally be a question asked, and then they would, they would roll these lots or th- cast these lots. And the way that they would fall would be how God reveals himself. So think of this. Here's this court case where there's this guy who gives a gift. He gets in with all these powerful people. He gets to, he gets to speak his case first until there's somebody who then examines. Then there's this great quarrel. But it's God's decision, God's revealed will that ends the quarrel. Right? Because notice what it says. It says it puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. It's not the one who has the most money and the most influence who's right. It's the ones who follow God's revealed principles or divine principles. You may think that you are protecting yourself by giving such gifts, by being the first to share your story. You may think that you're protecting yourself, but that's how a fool thinks. That's an imaginary castle. The thing that we should run to is the Lord and divine principles and divine judgment. God's principles that are found in his word. That's the arbitrator. That's where we flee. That's what we look to. It's sad when you have a society that leaves these divine principles and assumes that justice can be found through bribery and he who has the most money and has the most influence wins. He who gets to say the story first wins. A a wise person realizes how dangerous that is. A wise person realizes there's no protection there. The protection is the Lord and living by divine principles. What does God have to say on the matter? Now notice, notice verse 19, because often what ends up happening in some of these, these conflicts, some of these, these courtroom dramas, as we've seen in the book of Proverbs, is there's always a loser. And notice what it says in verse 19, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. It's likely that there's a connection between verse 19 and the verses above it, that this brother who's offended is the one who was on the wrong end of a lawsuit. And the sense is, is that once you've committed such a thing against a brother, he becomes a strong city, meaning good luck trying to reconcile with him. It's not going to happen. And and then it says, and then notice this, (laughs) 
verse 19, and quarreling is like bars to a castle, meaning you might go and confront him even if he's in the wrong. Let's say he's in the wrong, and you go to confront him. He's already offended. He's already closed off. Guess what? The moment you confront him, the doors to the castle are shut, right? You ain't talking. There is no reconciliation. The more you talk in this situation, the, the deeper the trenches get. I think there's a couple principles that we can learn from this. First, dear believers, know this. We as believers are not perfect. We are flawed, and we do incredibly insensitive things. We do incredibly inf- uh, offensive things. We say offensive things to each other here in this church. We do things that hurt each other. Know this, that if you do that, that one of the consequences that might happen from a constant offending somebody is that you will close them off. That's a reality. That, That should not be the reality in the church, but that's a reality. Realizing that our words do have consequences, our actions do have consequences, and it is possible for us to cause somebody to close up and not reconcile with each other. That is terrible. That is absolutely heartbreaking. Should not be. In my experience, most of the time when, 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 when people come together and, and, and there's, there's a seeking for reconciliation and they're at this point where they're closed off towards each other and you start to talk about the solution, you realize that the solution could have been solved way back in the beginning with a simple apology. That was it. This might be a shocker, but we all sin. We all offend each other. And we should be quick with our apologies towards one another. This this is something that God wants. We should be quick to ask for forgiveness and quick to give it. This is is what it looks like to be like Christ when we're dealing with one another. A church should not be a whole bunch of castles closed off against each other. We should not have grudges, and we should not be bitter. That is bad. That does not please God. That is a sin. As believers, we need to be like the Lord Jesus. We need to forgive one another as we've been forgiven. So if you find yourself closing those doors, not seeking reconciliation, my advice would be seek reconciliation. Now, sometimes reconciliation does not mean that the relationship is the same as it was before. But it doesn't mean you're in open war and aggression against your brother or sister. This is what a fool does. A fool is one who is always closing, always, always animosity. And he makes himself into a castle. What's the divine principle? Love as Jesus loved. Forgive as Jesus forgives. Show grace as Jesus has shown grace towards you. It's sad. It's sad that we hear many stories of churches where there is bitterness, there is animosity, and those things tear churches apart. I was in one place uh, with a buddy. We were driving down this road. And uh, we saw a Bible church, and I said, oh, look, there's a Bible church. 
couple feet down the road. Oh, there's another Bible church a quarter mile down the road. Another Bible church. Guess what? There was another one and another one and another one. What happened? <clears throat> there was a fight. There was a fight. <laughs> that was the explanation. And in the church world, we go, I get it. That should not be how we are as believers. As believers, we need to be loving and forgiving as Jesus is forgiving. So, in finding the right castle, finding the right way to protect yourself, to live the right way, to protect yourself from folly, to protect yourself from ruinous relationships, to protect yourself from from destroying your testimony, How, how do you help your family, how do you edify people, how do you protect yourself The answer is unequivocally, you cannot protect yourself in a sandcastle. You cannot protect yourself in an imaginary castle. You cannot protect yourself when you turn yourself into a castle. The only place that you can go for protection is the Lord himself and his word. That is where we flee. That is where we run. And my advice is that we run there now. And may we never be found in a situation where we leave that stronghold to where we have to run back. But if you do, and when you do, run back as fast as you can. May we constantly find protection in God himself, in his character, in his will, and in his word. May the Lord give us the will and ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, uh, we are so very thankful for your word. We're very thankful that you have placed us inside of a church family. We're very thankful that you have offered yourself up as a place where we can run to and be protected from the folly and the sin of the world. So we ask, Father, that we would continually run to you, continually run to your word, I pray that we would continually to run to your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would emulate Jesus more and more and that we would be people of love, of grace, of mercy, and of forgiveness. We are so very, very thankful. So very, very thankful for what you've done for us and we look forward to what you have for us for the rest of the day. We say this in your son's name, amen.